You know leftist teachers and administrators are indoctrinating the next generation. That's why the conservative student in your life needs Young America's Foundation. Students ages 13 and older can apply for YAF's individual membership program and connect with like-minded students, learn from leaders of the conservative movement, gain skills and materials to advance their ideas, and more. Apply today at www.yaf.org and receive a free membership pack again. That's www.yaf.org. Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me is my co-host, Luke Thompson, and we are continuing our deep dive into the American Congress with this week's episode. We're changing gears a little bit. We had over the last couple weeks, six or even seven weeks, goodness, I don't even remember now, we had looked at Congress from a historical perspective to sort of see Congress evolve throughout the generations and how Congress interacted with the you know the story of American politics. This week we're going to be beginning the second half of this series on Congress today, looking at Congress as an institution as it exists today. And when Luke and I were sitting down earlier today to sort of flesh out, okay, well, where do we start? Do we start with parties? Do we start with committees? Do we start with congressional procedure? It seemed to us like the most obvious place to start would be the individual member. And because, of course, Congress is an institution that's made up of 535 individuals with their own incentives, with their own motives, with their own beliefs, structures, and things like that. And there are similarities between members of Congress, but there's also important differences. And I think it's the best place to begin is to look at what motivates members of Congress to do what they do. Why? What what makes them get up in the morning and do the things that they do? Wouldn't you agree with that, Luke? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think there are sort of there are two things, right? There's there's what what motivates a member of Congress, and and what do the people who vote for, and what what do the people who vote for them think they're getting, and how do those two things intersect? Right, exactly. And so I think that the best place to start is thinking about representation as a concept. Um, representation is, of course, essential to American democracy. I mean, outside of small towns in New England, democracy in America has always been representative. So it's been like the Roman system of off, uh, officers who are popularly elected and then given a trust. Um, and so the question then is, all right, well, what is the expectation for representatives? And what's you know, and that requires what is often called a theory of representation or a model of representation, and there are there are a couple of them. Um, each of them have their own kind of um, uh, basis in uh, the truth. Uh, the first one that I, I would say the oldest one would be uh, what is known as the trusteeship model of representation. So a trusteeship model would be exactly what the word implies, like a trust uh, that, you know, like if you imagine you're under 18 years old, you've inherited, you've got this big inheritance, but you're not allowed to spend the money yet. You give the money, the money's placed into a trust and the trustee uh, is uh, tasked with investing the money wisely on your behalf for your best interests. And interestingly, one of the fun things about this model of uh, representation is that in many respects its its biggest defender was Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke is, I'm sure most of our listeners know, is often considered the father of uh, modern conservatism. But he was he was a practical man of politics, and he also was really I, I want to say one of, if not the first, to make positive case for party government in Parliament, and he also. Um, has this view of representation that is often known as the trusteeship model. And so I'm gonna to read to you uh, very briefly here. This is a letter that Burke wrote to the electors of Bristol. So Burke was a member of parliament and it was a little weird in the 1700s. Parliament was not all that democratic. Burke, I think got, had to, got iced out of one um, district and then jumped over to another district. 
And so this is a letter that he wrote to the voters, the electors. So this is a selection of it. So he says, certainly, gentlemen, it ought to be the happiness and glory of a representative to live in the strictest union, the closest correspondence, and the most unreserved communication with his constituents. Their wishes ought to have great weight with him. Their opinion, high respect, their business, unremitted attention. It is his duty to sacrifice his repose, his pleasures, his satisfactions to theirs, and above all, ever and in all cases, to preserve, prefer their interests to his own. So Burke is establishing here this idea of a representative as a servant, and we'll get into that in a little bit. However, Burke interjects, but, and this is a big but, as they say, but his unbiased opinion, his mature judgment, his enlightened conscience, he ought not to sacrifice to you, to any man, or to any set of men living. These he does not derive from your pleasure, no, nor from the law and the constitution. They are trust from providence, which is the you know, enlightenment era word that they used for God. And in the text, providence is capitalized. So a trust from providence or God for the abuse of which he is deeply answerable. Your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment. And he betrays instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. So the idea of the model here is that the representative is elected to do what he thinks is right or at the very least to not do things that he believes are wrong. And when you elect a member of Congress, you are electing a person with a conscience. And that person would be doing you as a voter a disservice if he were not to follow through on his conscience. That's right. Um, so the, and it, it's important to keep in mind here that, right, you know, Burke is not saying that, in fact, he's saying the opposite of the representative owes nothing to the people who, who elect him. Sometimes this trusteeship model gets stylized as, you know, you pick a shining person without regard to interest or ideology or expectation, and you send this excellent, you know, blue ribbon, straight A student person off into the legislature to do his will. And that's, that's not what Burke is saying. Right. So so if were he saying that it would be very easy to, to make a cartoon and reject out of hand the trusteeship model. Right, because it would right. it would be it would be facially ludicrous, right? Like, what is it to what what is a democracy if we simply select persons with no expectation of correspondence between our our, our desires, right? It's a very weak, um, it's a very weak vision of the bonds of representation. Burke is saying instead, you know, I will listen to you, but you know, and I I will I will have a deep sympathy with your interest over my own, which is to say, a sort of anti-corruption position, right? Like, like the, the, the representative should never pursue his own interests against the, the interests of, of the people that he represents, but that Burke's conscience and his judgment will be his first guide and the, the interests of, of, of the community his second. And, right. and that contrasts with the delegate model wherein, um, you know, a delegate model of representation, which, which you get in a lot of legislatures and which has its own, um, arguments for it, which I'll, I'll get to in a second, which is simply the sort of puppet vision of, of um, a representative where you go and you do what your vote, what your people want you to do, regardless of how you feel about it. You hold your nose and you do what you're going to do, because that's what your voters want. That's what, that's right. what the people in your district want. Um, so, so even if you think the death penalty is immoral, if most of the people in your district want the death penalty, well, then damn it, if a death penalty bill comes up, you're going to support it. Right, just as an example. Yeah. Um, so that th those are the two things: trustee, right? This Burkean trustee model, and then delegate, which is more of the sort of cat's paw model of representatives. Now, there are before we sort of I don't before we move on, I want to say the cat's paw or the, the delegate model is often then you know turned around and denigrated for being for being unmanly or for being callow or shallow in some way or 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 venal, right? And that's understandable. It's it's never um, edifying to watch a person subordinate his will. But when you think about it in terms of democratic accountability, when you think about it in terms of you know, trusting in the wisdom of the people you're there to represent. After all, you are not presenting, you are representing mm -hmm. a district. You know, it, there, there is a kind of even, I don't want to say honorable per se, but there's, there's a notable sacrifice of the self to the public in that. You know, the, the, after all, when does, when does enlightened judgment uh, stop and ego begin? 
right? Yeah, Wait. it's interesting you mentioned that, Luke, because Burke uses the phrases unbiased opinion, mature judgment, and enlightened conscience. So, but I would say if you're looking to criticize Burke, unbiased, mature, and enlightened are all in the eye of the beholder, aren't they? Right. Right. Yeah. And and the win, the win is the devil, right? When do you yeah. when do you do it? Right. Like, oh, oh, when it matters. Okay, well, how do we know that? When does it matter? Yeah. So I have uh, you know, it's the the delegate versus trustee model is not merely an abstract an abstraction, a theoretical abstraction. It actually it's a subtext within the federalist anti-federalist debates in the uh, Constitutional Convention era. Um, for instance, Madison uh, in Federalist 10 praises representation as a way to what he says refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens who wisdom, whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations. That is an articulation, at least on some level, of the Federalist, or excuse me, the, um, the trustee model. You know, one of the criticisms of the anti-Federalists and one of the things anti-Federalists demanded was, you know, we don't have, we send these guys off to Washington, we don't have any accountability over them. So they would have preferred things like instructed voting in the Senate, for instance, like state legislatures should be able to instruct the senators how to vote. So that would be an example of a delegate model and also recalls as well, which would facilitate delegate models. But I'd give you an example of how expectations with respect to the delegate models actually played out and, and how this was an expectation. Not as much nowadays, although it can be nowadays, we'll get to that in a minute, but this is an interesting letter. This is a letter that was written in the winter of 1788 from John Langdon, who was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention from New Hampshire. He's writing it to George Washington, and he's writing with bad news, which is the bad news is that New Hampshire has not ratified the Constitution. It was widely expected that New Hampshire would agree to it, as most of the small states had, but this is what Langdon has. He writes, sir, the convention of the state met the 13th instant to take into consideration the federal plan of government. Contrary to the expectation of almost every thinking man, a small majority of, say, four persons appeared against the system. This was the most astonishing to every man of any information as Massachusetts had accepted it and that this state in particular had everything to gain and nothing to lose. It goes on. This can be accounted for just at the moment of choice for members for our convention took place. A re report was circulated by a few designing men who wished for confusion. So he goes on. This induced them to choose not only such men as were against the plan, but to instruct them positively against receiving it. Okay. Langdon goes on to suggest um, that what they're going to do, let me see if I can find, I don't want to read, I have to read the whole thing, but Langdon goes, goes on to suggest that what they're going to do, they move, he says, this is, they move for an adjournment to some future day to take the final question back to the voters of New Hampshire. So basically Langdon's story here that he's telling Washington is that they spend 10 days debating the plan. At, in the ratifying convention, the delegates to it. They decide that it's a good idea, but they have been instructed to vote against it. So they're going to adjourn until June. They're going to go home. They're going to go back and talk to their constituents, and they're going to try and talk their constituents into changing their minds mm, before mm -hmm. they vote for it. So that would be an example of the delegate model actually being in an effect and the sort of normative kind of injunction. I, probably another good example of the delegate model in effect was Monroe at the Virginia ratifying convention. Monroe had been elected as a delegate to the Virginia convention, I want to say from Spotsylvania County, and he had been instructed to vote against the constitution. And Monroe, who was an extremely ambitious fellow, probably felt like that was going to damage his political prospects for having voted against it. Unfortunately for Monroe, his good buddy James Madison ends up opposing the Federalists and he gets brought back onto the team a couple years later. But Monroe, having been instructed, was effectively enjoined to vote against ratification. Right. And and it's it's I think that this is this is really important, is that like the delegate model doesn't it, it doesn't presume a one-way street. 
right? Ultimately, when there's a choosing point, the delegates have to do the will of the masses, right? But there, there's no law that says that they don't have an opportunity to speak back and plead the case. Because after all, and this is important, what underpins the theory of representation is the notion that specialization is necessary, right? right. And so, so these people are expected to have specialized knowledge. And in fact, to communicate it back to the public is, is part and parcel of being even, I don't even mean to say even, but a, a, a representative in the delegate model. Right. It's not right. sock puppeting, which is how it's often right. cartooned. Right. So if right. if if the trusteeship is cartooned as like if elite indifference and, and sort of narcissistic egoism, the delegate model is cartooned as sock puppeting. Both of them are, in fact, discursive. Right. They're both mm-hmm. clearly uh, intended to be discursive. But then, Jay, there's there's the third model um, that's sort of a hybrid of the two. Yeah, it's a hybrid. I've seen in the textbook that I taught con- my Congress class on called it the Politico model. You could call it a practical model. It's a hybrid of the two. So, And the question comes down to whether or not it's an issue of high salience or low salience. So an issue of high salience is that the public is deeply involved and they have well-formed opinions. And so in those situations, when public opinion is mature, that representatives are advised to act like delegates to just vote the way their constituents want. But on issues that are low salience, where voters don't really know the details of the issue, then they leave it up to the judgment of their members. So for instance, you know, if a debate on an infrastructure bill, should we send this amount of money into high-speed rail, yes or no, in this area of the country, you know, somebody who's on that committee can take it home to their voters and their voters is well, whatever, dude, you figure it out. You know, that's what we pay you for. You go to figure that out. I, I got to cook dinner right. on an issue like abortion. However, voters are going to have strong and importantly, well-formed opinions on an issue like abortion. And so a member of Congress then will be less likely or would be maybe the word is would be poorly advised to to act like a trustee on an issue where public opinion is well-formed and very um, strong. Yeah, and you actually see this in, in the practice of politics. So when, when you're building predictive micro-targeting models during campaigns, uh, you know, one of the paradoxes is that in most races, the candidates are not well-known enough to build a performing model until well into the process of campaigning. So you need information before that information is possible to create simply by asking, who do you like, this guy or that guy? And so one thing you can do, of course, is test biographies, hypothetical biographies, but those are a bit stylized. So often what I'll do, especially in primaries, is ask a, high, a series of high salience issue questions that split um, a primary electorate into like one third versus two thirds groups. And then if you look at clusters of these things, you can get a pretty good idea who's what kind of Republican in, a, in an mm, electorate. Interesting. Um, no, so yeah, is, issues persist, right? Like high salience issues persist. Issue salience is not static over time, right? Like, so you'll right. see, you know, terrorism in the last 10 years has gone way down for obvious reasons. Uh, immigration has gone up. Um, healthcare has, has fluctuated. The economy's always, and jobs are always pretty high. But there are, but there are you know, issues that move in and out depending on, on, on events. Nonetheless, people have pretty fixed and durable opinions on high, high salience issues. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too. You can look back um, at, you know, two elections, the 2010 midterm and the 1994 midterm, and you can see Democratic defeats are are correlated to controversial votes that members took. So, like, for instance, I, as I think many of our readers know, our listeners know, I live in Western Pennsylvania. It's a very pro-life part of the country. Um, and the representative from Erie, Pennsylvania, Kathy Dahlkemper, took a very high-profile vote on Obamacare and sort of what were pretty lukewarm protections against government funding of forcing healthcare providers or forcing employers to provide abortion coverage. This was at the time, those of you who, who are old enough to remember back in 2010, this was a big deal. And Dahl Camper had styled herself as on the pro-life side and she you know, could probably cost her her seat. If you go back to 1994, can actually see correlation between uh, the vote on the crime bill 
or that no the assault weapons ban well, i don't mm-hmm. remember if that was part of the crime bill or not but member southern members southern democrats suffered disproportionately for votes in favor of the assault weapons ban so there are times where members make a bad judgment on that and suffer electorally as a consequence so it you know it and I, I guess that sort of it probably is a good way to lead. I mean, us. consider consider all the northern Republicans who voted for the Iraq War, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I, I think that's probably a good place to sort of lead us into how members of Congress interact with their districts, because you know, I don't want to say this. I, I think the way to think about members of Congress is. They live in perpetual fear of everything. <laughs> I, mean, right? I, I can They're, I can confirm that this is in fact true. They are an extremely paranoid bunch. They live in perpetual fear. And their job, you'd think that their job is to write laws. I mean, that's part of it. But their job is to stay in front of public opinion within their district, which means that they have to have a keen knowledge but also Luke would you agree uh, that they have to have a kind of preternatural feel for their districts which I, I would say is hard to do now considering in the age of modern gerrymandering where there where congressional districts no longer represent actual communities pre-existing communities you know they cut across county lines and town lines and you know, even precincts in some cases, you know, when you agree, it's hard, it's hard to do. Yeah, it it can be really hard, especially too, because you get this, um, you know, you do have a distinction between the considerations of activists um, and who, who consume large amounts of political media and the concerns of, of everyday voters. And it's not, you'll see these stylized versions of this where, you know, people who bitch about politics will say, oh, well, you know, most, most voters are moderate and even most primary voters are moderate, but the, but you know, it's the, the people who consume MSNBC or Fox news and they're, they're, they're crazy and they skew the primaries. And that's actually not true. What, what it is, is that, you know, yes, you do have these media hyper-consuming activists who are, in fact, the most predictable people because they're just going to be hard right on every issue or hard left on every issue, or hard right? Left. Like they're, they're, they're in fact, super easy. You figure out where the like wing of your party is on that issue. And that's where they're going to be. What's much tougher is that in fact, most of your primary voters are if you're Republican, they're pretty conservative, but they're not uniformly conservative. And as events take place, you, you can't always predict, oh, well, they're going to be, um, you know, they're, they're going to be really, they're going to take the, the, the ideological posture on this one versus that one, right? And, you know, decisions age poorly and voters are remarkably good you know, psychologically at letting themselves off the hook for they their do. previous preferences while punishing yep. people for what they, you know, for the preferences for their that they've taken. Yeah, per- the, a Republican party in the global war on terror is the, probably the best example. Great in, example of that. Well, and I mean, yeah. but you could say the same with the democratic party too. Right? Yeah, like, so the Republican party, yeah. you know, the Republican party right now is by and large, you know, it, it's not clean, but certainly the, the, you know, Donald Trump was was deeply skeptical of the war on terror, said a lot of you know things about how it was dumb and never should have been fought. And Republican Party public opinion moved, even mm-hmm. though the voters who are moving their opinion were the same voters who nominated George W. Bush twice and, and put him in the White House for two terms. Um, and, you know, that at the same time, right, Barack Obama wins the nomination in 2008 for the Democrats largely on the back of of having opposed the Iraq war. And then the Democrats turn around and nominate two people who voted for it uh, sequentially in in Hillary Clinton and and Joe Biden. So, you know, again, issue salience moves up and down. Voters can be amnesic. They can be forgiving and they can be um, they can also be uh, retributive and unfair. Yeah. And so so it does. Jay's right. I mean, when he says they live in perpetual fear and paranoia, it's 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 right. It's a little I mean, it's not they're not crazy. What it is, is that they have a high status job and there are always people who would like to take that job away from them. And there's usually two on both within their political party and on the opposite side. Pretty much every state Senator thinks he could be doing a better job than his Congressman. Right. 
uh, every state representative thinks he could be doing a better job than a state senator. Both of those groups look at the secretary of state at the state level and think he sucks. All the constitutional officers think, well, I ought to be governor. What's she doing? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, then they look up at the every senator thinks they could be president. And yeah, exactly. Most of the governors think they could be president, too. So so there's there's upwards hunger. Um, There's also cross partisan hunger. And so, um, you know, people know that there's there is a um, there's a desire to to take the job. So then why is it that incumbents keep getting reelected? And, you know, there there have been this was like what what does what do members of Congress want? Right. Um, This was the grounds for some really, really rich political science done about 50, 60 years ago. can I just say, Luke, before yeah, you sure. get into that, I, I, because Luke's going to talk about Dave Mayhew and Richard Fenno mm-hmm. um, 50 years ago. It is, it is remarkable, I have to say, how much political science literature from the 70s is still really solid, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. There well, are I mean, still theories. There are still theories on the organization of Congress, congressional committees that is that are relevant. Like I think Weingast and Marshall was from the late 70s too. Yeah. This yeah. is a little on the nerdy side, but it was a, a yada yada yada. It was a good decade for political science. I'll just say yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm biased. Uh, David Mayhew was the independent reader in my dissertation, and and he's just he's an, a, a a gentleman and a scholar in the truest sense of the word. He really a, is a wonderful human being. Um, but yeah. uh, I I would just yeah. So anyway, let me let me break that down really quickly. So Richard Fenno, um, as a political scientist, is he at Cornell? I don't remember. Um, he. I thought he was out west. I thought he was at Stanford, was okay. but I could yeah. be wrong. Oh, you know what? Know. It's Ted Lowy who is at who is at Cornell. Um, okay. Anyway, Fenno uh, has this sort of interesting idea, which is people study the formal rules of constitutions and things like that, but they don't really study the actual practice of politics. I'm going to do this. So how should I do it? Well, I'll take the emerging methods of anthropology and institutional sociology, and I'll put those to work. And so he he colloquially called it soaking and poking. Uh, And so what he did was he went and hung out in congressional offices and he followed members of Congress around. He just sort of shadowed. He just talked with them conversationally. Yeah. Just talked with them. Like it wasn't like a scoop, like this, he did, he would quote congressmen, but it was all on background. Yeah. He took notes, you know, took pretty exhaustive and extensive notes, but it wasn't for attribution. And he, and he was focused on these questions about not, you know, what do you think of the farm bill? What do you think we should do with Medicaid? But just, so what do you, you know, how do you feel about, this interaction with a lobbyist comes in or, or a group of your constituents show up, et cetera. Oh, we're going to go to, you know, Hungarian national days in <laughs> you know, wherever, right. And we're going to walk on the parade and wave. And, and um, you know, he just, he, it, Oh, look, there's uh, some people in four, 4-H has got some, some people here. We're going to have the kids in. we'll shake their hands and talk about animal husbandry briefly and give them all pens or, or whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, he, he, sat in this and, and marinated in it and, and came up with, you know, a typology of congressional behavior that, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to, to dwell too long in the actual, like, conclusions and the typology he comes up with. But what he came to the conclusion of is that even though they are in D.C., members of Congress are always looking at their district, that, that the district is king, and that the arcana of of districts can override, you know, whatever big philosophical picture or coalitional project you have in mind, you know, if the 4-H kids are in the, in the office, he's going to be in the office, right? If, if like the, uh, the chamber of commerce of, of, of Mudtown is, is there, or in, of Mudville has shown up, then, then sorry, but the chairwoman is just not going to be available for your lunch. Um, and, and that was a really important orientation because, you know, members of Congress had previously been viewed really as as in hyper formalistic ways, right? Um, either in these sort of cartoonish versions of the delegate model uh, versus the versus the trusteeship model, or merely as pieces in um, a, a set of institutional interactions, or as just like variable personalities, right? Oh, you know, here's a great man. Here's you know a scoundrel, whatever. Um, and so what, what Fenno was saying, and, and what was important was, look, these are human beings, and their priorities are highly parochial. And, you know, 
their, their first and foremost consideration is going to be the provincial bigotries of the district that they represent. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Now, it wasn't a systematized theory of um, psychology or incentives. Rather, it was with this in mind, here's how we can break out different, different behaviors, right? And so he identifies that sometimes they're, uh, you know, they're engaged in, in bringing home the bacon. Sometimes they're engaged in position taking or signaling. Um, you know, sometimes they're, they're just engaged in sort of like hail fellow well met, slap you on the back, kiss the baby type thing. Um, this, these observations uh, didn't do a whole lot to explain congressional behavior in the aggregate, right? Even though it gave a sense of the different ways in which members of Congress might act. And when you were observing congressional behavior, it was a helpful typology of breaking down what you were seeing. It didn't really say a whole lot about the underlying structure of congressional action independent of the constitutional structure. And it fell to David Mayhew, uh, who said, you know, sociology and anthropology are all well and good, but why don't we take some of the background of neoclassical economics and see if those, you know, those concepts can inform what we think Congress is up to. And specifically what he was thinking is, let's look at, you know, incentives, individual incentives and the way they aggregate. And what Mayhew was able to discern is that almost all, and it seems so obvious now that people will be like, why the hell was that a, a monumental piece of political science? Duh, yeah. right? But, but in yeah. fact, it, it's, as Tocqueville said, great revolutions uh, annihilate the evidence of their own found, like creation, right? The reasons of their own mm-hmm. creation, right? When they're successful, they make the previous world seem impossible. And Mayhew's Congress, the Electoral Connection, does this. It's so thorough and effective and really brilliant and beautiful. It's also only like 120 pages, so everybody should go Yeah, and it's and really read. readable too, by the yeah, way. He's a, he's a great which, writer. Yeah, which, by the way, if you're looking for like some good books on Congress to read that aren't just like a bunch of you know, um, models with T, you know, with P values everywhere. Um, Mayhew's electoral Congress, the electoral connection is really good, easy read. Fedo's home style is fantastic to read because it's all these it's so fun. great and it, it's amazing. It's such a great book. So, and they're both easy reads. Neither is a huge investment, you know, if you, but you can, get, again, you can get a used copy online for, for, yeah, for like a book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, like I said, it's remarkable. You'd think if you were poking around on Amazon, you saw these books and looked at the pub date, you'd be like, oh, this book's got to be out of date. They're not though. It's not like, as, as Luke said, they're just like these, these two books really caught something that is just true. But this is, but so this is what, this is what Mayhew catches, right? Is that yeah. members of Congress want to get reelected. That's it. Like that's it. <laughs> that's the whole, that's the story. That's the story. Now, there are things that follow from this, but they want to get reelected. Why? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You know, is it the money? Mm, maybe. Is it the psychological affirmation because of, you know, issues they have with their absent parents? Almost certainly. Doesn't matter. Alcoholism? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> unsuitability for honest labor? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, um, you know, it, it's that w- for whatever reason, whatever the underlying things that propelled people into office in the first place persist, or they get acculturated to want to continue. Um, now, there's there's some reason to question whether or not some of this is breaking down, right? Congress has never been more populated by novices, really, at least in a century than it is now. Um People, members of Congress are serving shorter and shorter terms. Some of them would say shorter and shorter sentences. Um, I do think the quality of life, I mean, I know this from speaking to, to members, the quality of life has diminished considerably. Uh, you know, I've had, I have members who I've spoken to about their, their future plans and whether to run for higher office or to take an appointment administration or whatever. And they, you know, the, it's not uncommon to hear, look, I don't know whether I'm going to do X or Y, but I'll tell you by year Z, I'm not going to be a member of Congress anymore. Yeah. And, and that's new. That's a change, right? Um, it, it used to be, and, and I think still in the main, it remains the case that like people want to get reelected and that um, the, the electoral incentive and the desire to try to figure out what that incentive is, and also to avoid uh, the the the, out, the reverse outcome being unelected. Yeah, I was going to say even even if people are they they want to leave, they want to leave on their own terms, 
And they'll, they'll also want to keep their options open. So members, even if they're noodling with the idea of retirement, they'll, they'll still, I, I still think Mayhew's basic theory holds. I mean, because at the very least, if they, you know, nobody, want, nobody put it this way. It's not just I want to get reelected, but I mean, there is I can't even imagine the humiliation you incumbent members of Congress must feel when they lose reelection. So it's got to be a, a soul crushing experience that all members, no member wants to experience that. Um, yeah, that's right. And and it also I mean, look, put it this way. Um, there's a. There is there's a difference in the outcome um, of what follow, like the when a if you lose your seat, right, you're viewed as less powerful than if you retire. If you retire and become a lobbyist, even if you were definitely going to lose, generally speaking, it's perceived that you still sort of have your juice. And so the the attitude is kind of, hey, look, um, you know, let's let's avoid a defeat so that we can move on to the next thing with our, with our reputation intact, right? I mean, this is part of why you see a wave of these retirements because we have had successive waves of, um, what's the word I'm looking at? A successive wave elections. And so people seeing that coming have stepped down. That's a way of saying it may be that, that Mayhew is correct and that the electoral connection remains intact. It's just that we've had tsunamis wiping out people and they see it coming and so they retire before before they right. get whacked. Right. Um, so anyway, sorry, go ahead, Jay. You were about to say something. Well, yeah. So um, I, I have some thoughts for you with, res- I, and I, I, Luke, I want um, to, I'm going to, I think th- you're probably the best person to comment on Mayhew's advertising credit claiming position taking. But before you get to that, I want to sort of swing back to Fenno. Um, and, and so you uh, it, I think it's important for our, to, you know, what makes Fenno so useful, even though so much has changed. I think his book came out in 78. Um, so much has changed since 1978. But where Fenno, I think, makes a really solid contribution is, and a durable contribution, is articulating how members of Congress conceptualize their districts and for the purposes of winning re-election. And I think that's sort of worth thinking about. And Fenno's model is, is a series of, you can imagine a series of concentric circles with the outermost circle represents each, each circle, each representing a certain constituency. So the outermost circle would be the district constituency, everybody in the district, okay? Now, and, the, that is going to include people who will vote for you in the general election, no, no matter what, and people who will never vote for you, no matter what. That's everybody in the district. Okay. The next concentric circle down is what Fenno calls the re-election constituency. These are the people that you need to win uh, to to win re-election. So it's you know that's at very least that's half plus one of your district. The next circle down below that is the primary constituency. So those are the people you need to win to be renominated. And then the, the smallest circle is what he calls the personal constituency, which is going to be your, your core donors, your advisors, people like that. And I, I have a few comments I want to make about that. It's important. I think one, one of the things, things that Fano points out is that a challenge that members of Congress face is that these constituencies do not remain constant over time. Congressional districts change. I mean, obviously they change from the decennial census when they're redrawn, but even within um, since even within they can change. You can have in migration, you can have out migration, you can have as Luke suggested, you can have issues drop away in salience, issues rise in salience, things like that. And, and you can see members of Congress usually don't have the pool to move public opinion, but presidential candidates, on the other hand, do. And I think, you know, two great examples of that. I think that when 
there was a, a Republican presidential debate in 2016 when Donald Trump denounced the Iraq war. And I know a lot of Republicans, I was working at the Weekly Standard at the time, which as I'm sure our listeners know, is a very, was a very pro-Iraq war magazine. There was sort of a sense at the, at the magazine, oh, we've gone too far now, you know, the voters are going to reject him. But in fact, it was the opposite. Like when Trump said that, it, uh, it almost kind of began a cascade effect where Republican voters, as Luke had said, Democratic voters, even up to you know, 10 years earlier, had sort of excused themselves for their support of the war. Republican voters started to do that. You know, that's the sort of thing that can shift the dynamics within a district. You know, an- another thing that can, can, another example of that would be Obama in 2008, or excuse me, in 2012, coming out in favor of gay marriage. That had an effect shifting the Democratic Party, especially non-white voters within the Democratic Party. So there's all sorts of ways things can shift within a district. And so what a member needs to do is they need to be aware of those shifts. And that requires, I I would suggest, and, and Fenno goes into detail about this, but it requires a really robust network of, of, to provide members of Congress with political intelligence. So members will talk to, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're gonna, who are you gonna talk to? You're gonna make sure you, you are always in touch with the, whatever labor groups are in, your, are in your district. If you're a Republican, you're gonna keep in touch with the Chamber of Commerce and things like that. And that, that's part and parcel of the personal constituency, but you have to guard against the shifting of these, these um, constituencies. And you know, there are some really striking examples of people, members who failed to do this. And, and I'll give you one that probably most of our readers are familiar with, but back in, I think it was, what was it 2014, Eric Cantor was, you know, Eric Cantor was on track to become Speaker of the House. And he had, um, this was his congressman from Virginia, from uh, outside of Richmond. And this was back when the Republicans, the, the district lines that had been drawn in the previous decade had been drawn by the Republicans and had been drawn basically, you know, his district was basically drawn to make sure he didn't have to worry about reelection. Um, and so he just went on kind of building a career within the party and climbing the, the ranks within the party. But Cantor was caught unawares of the extent to which his primary constituency had moved against him. And I still remember like the day before his primary, his pollster released a, some ridiculous poll showing Cantor was comfortably ahead and he ends up losing to Dave Bratt, who was an economics professor. And he ends up losing by such a wide margin that his poll, Cantor didn't even know who his primary constituency was in terms of, in terms of polling. So that's a, that's an example. I'll give you another quick example before I throw it back to Luke, but um, you know, somebody who was a real master of this was um, John Dingle. So John Dingle was for many years, the Dean of the house of representatives a really, really smart politician. Uh, comes into Congress in the 1950s after his, his dad dies and he takes the seat. And when he um, takes the seat, he is representing Dearborn and Dearborn Heights outside of Detroit. It's very heavy UAW area and Dingle behaves accordingly. Uh, but over time, the, the demographics of the district shift. And after, I believe, the 2000 uh, redistricting, the Republicans, because the Republicans, if I remember correctly, Republicans were control this redistricting. They draw the lines in such a way to put Dingle in a primary challenge with Congresswoman from Ann Arbor. And Dingle ends up winning narrowly or maybe by a moderate amount. But anyway, Dingle, I mean, if you know the Democratic Party, you appreciate that there's a difference between the Democrats who live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the Democrats who live in Dearborn Heights, Michigan, or Dearborn, Michigan. And so Dingle had to shift over the years he had to maneuver over the and 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 it wasn't simply a matter of you know changing his position on things but he had to be aware of what groups and factions within the party 
he needed to keep happy to prevent this, the, that which happened to Cantor happening to him. And so this is sort of the challenge that members of Congress face in sort of seeing and dealing with all of these different factions within their districts, keeping them happy so as to cobble together a victory in the primary, but then also later on a victory in the general. Yeah, I mean, so in the case of Dingle, right, he becomes much less of a hard hat, sort of blue collar Democrat, much more of a sort of um, higher socioeconomic status college town cultural liberal Democrat, you know, never, never completely changing from one to the other, right? But it, it certainly, his, he puts a different emphasis on a different syllable, let's put it that way. Exactly. That's exactly the way it is. Because a lot of times it's not, it's not the issues or the press releases that they put out. It's, it's in the, it's almost like you want to say it's in oh, yeah. the adverbs and adjectives. I mean, I mean, Look, Eric's a good. Suppose the nouns and verbs. Yeah, Eric, Eric's adverbs. a good example of that, right? Like so, and I, know. I full disclosure, I I know Eric Canner. I've worked on projects with him after his time in Congress. Um, I I think he's a wonderful person and was a really good member of Congress. But he, um, you know, he was down the line conservative. He was fighting the Obama administration all the time, um, and he like on the votes, it was very difficult to sit there and say, oh, you know, Cantor lost his seat because of a bad vote on issue X. But, you know, he was the majority leader um, trying to position himself to become a speaker. Uh, but what wound up happening was that, you know, there was there was a, a set of very, very angry people who were really animated and fired up and they were ready to to get rid of of Cantor. Now, what's interesting is that even with the lines not being drawn, Bratt spent four years in Congress, maybe six um, let's see if it is. Yeah, four years in Congress. And then he lost to a Democrat. He did. Uh, he lost um, to a Democrat. Spanberger, so, right? Spanberger, Abigail Spanberger, who, and he lost handily, and Spanberger won re election. So the seat yeah. uh, under the same lines that were drawn to make Eric Cantor safe uh, because he had won. He had won an early whip challenge with Roy Blunt, now the retiring senator from Missouri, to be um, to be the whip in the House, and that was how he got started on his leadership career. We'll talk more about careers later, um, but you know uh, these lines have been drawn for for Cantor and to his benefit, had led to him getting primaried out, and then turned around and led to a fairly sizable defection of high socioeconomic status previously like independents and Republicans to voting Democratic for Congress and electing Spanberger, who is, you know, stylized as a moderate Democrat and, and you know, fairly hawkish on foreign policy and, and things like that. So you have, yeah, you have a really fascinating, in the span of a decade, just a total shift in, in, a, single, yeah, I, in a single district. You know, another good example, too, and I don't want to belabor the point, but being able to be aware of what's going on in your district, Joseph Crawley, um, sure. Who was oh, a yeah. congressman from yeah. um, New York, New York 18th congressional district, our 14th congressional district. You might recognize that name because there is now an Instagram star who is the supposed representative of that district when she's not busy getting her picture taken or appearing on an endless live stream. But Joseph Crawley was the congressman from the 14th district of New York, which is basically a district that is bits of what is that like uh brooklyn and then is it the bronx it's it's, it, it's the bronx and queens it's the okay thanks i'm sorry it's the bronx and queens okay so crawley is and crawley had been in congress um for uh, 20 Ever? years had been in yeah. congress for 20 years and you think okay i'm a democrat in new york city the bronx and queens i'm i'm golden so what's he do he not, ends not, up not, not only that he's he's the chairman of the of the county party Oh, they, yeah. So what's he do when he gets into Congress? I mean, he's by a, a couple, you know, by 2010 or so, he's in leadership. And by the time of 2017, the last time he's the chair of the House Democratic Caucus, which I want to say is what's that, the fourth ranking yeah, it, Democrats it's, in it's the House? For, it's fourth ranking, but importantly, because the Democrats in the House um, are so old. While he was fourth ranking, he was viewed as almost certainly the successor to be to be the leader of the Democrats in the House after Pelosi. Yeah. Right. So okay. heir, heir, so, heir apparent, fourth ranking, but heir apparent. So you think if you're Crawley, okay, no problem. The the age of AOC has been brought about because in 2018, Crawley lost renomination. And he lost. 12,000 votes to 6,000, 16,000 votes. 
he, yeah, he lost by 4,000 votes out of less than 30,000 votes cast. There were 30,000 votes cast in that district. And he lost, he, he couldn't, he couldn't scrounge together another 4,000. For, for that worth, that's an insanely low number. Typically it's you're looking an, at like three X that in a district. Yeah. For, yeah. So it, it, that's an example of a member, not like just losing control of his primary constituency. That's well, what, the sort, especially one that is so small. Well, what happened there was really interesting, which was if you look at after the fact, Crowley wins all the older, uh, heavily Latino districts in his or uh, precincts in his district, but he loses the um, the whitest districts with the highest rate of in migration. Um, you know, gentrific- gentrification in the Bronx and Queens had brought a lot of yuppies in, and these yuppies were are on the whole, um, generally more ideologically ideological. Mm-hmm. They don't have history in the district, so they don't really care about you know what. Crawley has accomplished from the standpoint of distributive goods for the district. Um, they don't have a lot of, uh, you know, particularistic bonds to it, right? And so they voted on mass for AOC, who was like them, right? You know, yeah. She was born, I think she was born in the Bronx, but she's not from the district. She grew up in Westchester County, right? Went to college in Boston. And yep. I don't believe even lives in the district. Um, yeah. But she was, you know, young, professional, and had, a, you know, had a sort of commitment to a kind of highly aestheticized green socialism, and that's what those people wanted. And so Crowley had counted on, you know, his long tenure and 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 his reputation in the district with its longstanding residents. But those residents were had changed, and they got swamped yeah. by middle and upper middle class white people who, by the way, voted a really high rate. So even though they were disproportionately yeah. not a huge chunk of the district's population, they were overrepresented in the district's electorate. In the, in the, and that's that's exactly the challenge that members face because these districts are not static entities. There's constant, you know, in migration, out migration, even if it's small numbers, they're in less, you know, and you'd think, usually we don't usually think of it on this level of granularity as Luke is suggesting. Um, but in primary politics, those sorts of different, you know, like if we think of the Republican Party as being red and the Democratic Party as being blue, it's like there's different shades of red and blue. And even if a district over time remains the same, the shading of the district can change in what, like a certain type of red that's going to attract a certain type of member. The great example is here in Pennsylvania. I mean, this is the sort of thing that Scott Darlin Specter, Pennsylvania as a state, if anything, has become more Republican over the course of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but Pennsylvania's Republicanism has become less centered around the upscale suburbs of Philadelphia. And it's more, it, it remains rooted in the center of the state, but more a kind of working class Republicanism outside of, outside of Pittsburgh. And the net effect between these two shifts has been to actually move the state as a whole slightly in the Republican direction. But Arlen Specter was the sort of guy who had cut his teeth as a prosecutor in Philadelphia. He was on the Warren Commission and then had been a moderate um, Philadelphia-style Republican. And this is why he ends up leaving the party in 2010 or 2009, because he knows Pat Toomey is going to wipe him out because the western half of the state was so done with the guy it's an example of so it's not it's not just a it's not just a the the theory is applicable not just for house members but for states as well and again it's one of those things like if you look at the map of pennsylvania over time you're not going to see enormous shifts in the aggregate between the r's and the d's it's actually been remarkably stable but the composition of the two parties within the state has changed enormously. And so the challenge that members face is the first is to recognize these cha- these changes, hopefully before they come, because they need to get out in front of them because they can't be left seeming to be inauthentic with these emerging groups and playing catch up, right? Like, and that's the sort of problem that caught Cantor is that he was too late to the Tea Party. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, what's ironic, too, find Arlen Specter is such a good example about, of this with Toomey, too, because they, they swing back around, right? Like Arlen Specter, tough on crime prosecutor who, who put away a whole bunch of people who had probably been subject to, like, fairly gratuitous violence by Frank Rizzo's police force in Philadelphia. <laughs> like, absolutely. A, I, I mean, <laughs> like, but legitimately, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about a guy who was like, like Arlen Specter was a back to blue Republican before it was cool. 
right? And yep. he was sort of didn't really care about about social issues that much, you know, kind of moderately pro-choice, moderately, you know, whatever, um, didn't want to deal with it, very big on police, um, pr- fairly protectionist on trade issues, right, you know, um, uh, all of these things, uh, and I- ironically from Russell, Kansas, the same hometown as Bob Dole, but, um, you know, Specter today would look a lot more like the Republican Party than he did when Toomey beat him. And Toomey, of course, is retiring <laughs> because he, as a former president of the Club for Growth, feels like he's, he's out, out, of, out of step with the Republican out Party. Yeah. So it's it's, so it's I, things things everything to everything a season, right? Turn yeah. turn turn. Yeah, and so I, I think the final thing. So having sort of used this kind of idea, so we talked about Fenno conceptualizing how districts are done, uh, but. Also, so I want to talk a little bit about um, the final point from you know Mayhew sort of pointing us in the way of the um, the re-election above all else, or at the very least, avoidance of electoral defeat above all else. So Mayhew had and Luke, I'm going to pose this in the form of a question to you since you're 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 so engaged in politics on a day to day level, but I'm curious to see what your take on the relevance of these three things is. Mayhew says there are three big things that members do to secure and maintain re-election. The first is advertising. So obviously paid advertising, but what's known as like earned advertising. So giving a speech at the Daughters of the American Revolution dinner, so you get your picture in the, in the local paper, okay? Another thing would be the credit claiming, okay? So, and of course the grand, <laughs> I was, the grand master of credit claiming is uh um blank and a senator from west virginia what's his name bird you know bird i was gonna say well, bird Grand bird's Wizard. not okay so actually bird yeah uh, so so senator bird <laughs> is not a credit claim um so one of the interesting things that mayhew points out is that while certain members may through their seniority or position as chairman allocate money into the districts in most mm. cases these will be byproducts of federal administrative decisions or aggregate legislative decisions that the individual members will have at best limited input into right and so what you do is you show up in front of a like repaved highway that sure right. you probably voted for it but the reality yeah, is it was exactly. going to happen anyway and you go i did this <laughs> right exactly yeah so but bird actually because of his seniority could actually claim yeah, he was he was chairman of the he was such a big deal yeah yeah but so that's what members do they get their picture in front of everything that they can and and, and mayhew's argument for that is that congress is such a byzantine inscrutable institution that members have to take any opportunity they can to let their voters know that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and then the third thing that Mayhew outlines is position taking. So taking a stand on the big issues, right. And, and releasing statements. So like, if you look at a lot of, like a lot of members, you know, let's say like my Congressman, for instance, is Mike Kelly. He is the ranking member of the, I, th- I want to say the oversight committee on ways and means. Okay. So, which in the grand scheme of things, is not a bad job. I mean, he's on ways and means, which as his constituent makes me pretty happy and he's, you know, he's got a stable job. So, you know, he's probably going to get a bump up somewhere on a, a more attractive, like um, uh, subcommittee at some point. But, you know, if you go to his website, he's got a statement on there about education and he's got statements in there about energy independence. And these are not really things that, that ways and means subcommittee on oversight are really dealing with. Right. And I think his other ways and means subcommittee appointment is healthcare. Right. But that's what he has to do is just take positions so that people know what he stands for. So those are the three that Mayhew enumerates advertising, credit claiming and position taking. And so as sort of like I'll throw it back to you, Luke, for a final comment. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the extent to which those three are still relevant and if their relevancy has changed, how it's changed and why. Sure. So, I mean, to, to send us out, here's, here's what I'd say. Um, that typology, I think, still applies. I think it still covers the range of things that members do. Um, what Mayhew doesn't dig into in detail, and I mean, this is understandable, it wasn't his question, but it is, I think, a question appropriate to sort of congressional observers today, is stipulate for the sake of argument that Mayhew's tripartite typology is accurate. It doesn't follow from that, that the um, mixture or the ratio of those three parts to one another is going to be static over time. And, and I think that it can safely be said that um, position taking has um, exceeded 
uh, advertising, like, and, and look, when we say advertising, it's not just buying ads. It's often, you know, local media, local TV guys love when the congressman comes to town because it's easy copy, right? The congressman yeah, and will, it's and congressmen love it too, right? Because local media almost always goes easy on them. Right, exactly. Like, and it, local media does not throw hardballs at congressmen. Right. It, it's and they get really good ratings and lots of people who are older watch it and those people vote in higher proportions. And so right. so it's you know advertising unfortunately a lot of members of congress have become very DC centric and they've forgotten about this. So they would rather get like a mention in a say conservative or liberal uh, blog. Um, that they can help to do small dollar fundraising with than a local media hit. And I, I will tell you, I always advise my clients, like do local TV all the time, do it all the time. It's worth, it's, it's, it's just so valuable because you get tons of exposure and, you know, we can actually track the dollar value of it. And it's really, really hmm. valuable. Um, that's a, but anyway, uh, the point is that, um, you know, I think that elite habits of behavior, as much as institutional incentives, turn, cause changes in the in the ratio. And so, credit claiming I think is much reduced, uh, mostly because the populace seems to to question the efficacy of the federal government to do anything that meaningfully changes or improves their lives. Advertising is reduced because the ecosystem of local media has attenuated considerably due to the eco- economics of journalism, even the. But even despite that, it remains really powerful. And I would say position taking has increased in its ratio um, as as politics has seemingly become more nationalized. Some of that is driven by those economic and institutional incentives, but a lot of it is just driven by 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 habits of mind that are inculcated within Congress by their members and by their staff. And so I think mm, uh, just as just as Newt Gingrich was very enterprising to see the power of C-SPAN and exploit it when nobody else thought it was valuable, I I would tell any member of Congress in either party like. You should be on a weekly news package. You should be on it in a, in a news package every single week in your district, and just bounce from right. from one to, from from each one. Don't don't try to get yourself on MSNBC every week. Don't try or to get yourself on Tucker. Fox. Just right. like I mean, if you can get on a you know like a like getting on Tucker's great. That's worth it, right? That's three million, four million people who are your base national audience. It's going to build your brand. It's going to help you if you do a good job, build a list, and help you fundraise. But that's not mm-hmm. the end all be all. And you see these members of Congress. And I won't name names, but they know who they are. Who they essentially turn their entire staffs into comms teams, whose job it is to get them on national cable television every week. And I'm telling you, it is just from a from a purely electoral incentive. They think that it's good because it helps them raise small dollars. They think that it's good because it does get them national eyeballs, but it does not do what local TV does. And local TV is low risk, low impact, and they're, they're eager to have you. Yeah, they're eager to have you. It's, and like and they said, also, it's they, always... play, they play the package. Like cable yeah, TV they play plays the package again and again and once. Again. Right, I mean, like, you would be amazed. I have a, can- I have a client who's a statewide office holder, um, and you know this is his first, he took office at the end of last year, right? After getting elected. And his name ID statewide has gone, it's like tripled uh, from election. From just day, local. From election day, just by being on local TV, talking about what he's doing. Yeah, because, you know, local newspapers have just completely fallen apart. But local ABC, the uh, local ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox affiliates are still robust. And, and, and yeah, they're, they're desperate for, I mean, because their, their budgets are, you know, I mean, they're at this point, basically a bunch of glorified ambulance chasers, to be perfectly honest. So they don't have the budgets, the news budgets for, you know, major investigative pieces, which don't really sell anyway. So if they're always looking for a, an easy story to, to, you know, to throw on in between the weather and traffic. Yeah, exactly. And if you stand there and you talk to the reporter for five minutes, not only will they clip it and make you look good, um, they'll run it five, six, seven, eight times. And if it's a networked affiliate, um, oftentimes they'll run it statewide, which is crazy. That's <laughs> anyway. crazy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Luke, Luke has generously given <laughs> all of our listeners his trade secrets. <laughs> only one. So Only one. Okay. Well, Luke, you have to be careful. Don't do that in the next episode. Yeah, they get, they get to pay for that. Yeah, they got to pay. You have to pay. You have to pay for that if you want. For the good you, stuff. If you want Luke's, Luke Sage counsel. That that one's a freebie. Also, yeah, that that was it was a good one though. I like that. All right, so All that right. was a lot of fun. So that's that's we'll we'll wrap things up here. I think um, our next episode we're going to talk about career building within Congress. So 
now like I walked you through now congratulations Mr. Congressman you've been elected Madam Congresswoman now what are you going to do what, what do you want to do with your time in Congress so that's going to be our look at next week um, so we hope you've enjoyed this if you're still listening to this podcast and you are probably <laughs> enjoying it anyway I mean at this point it'd be like Chinese water torture to to be continuing to listening to us oh, I hate these two what do you what do you go go outside and go watch a football game or something anyway Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And also, you know, thank you for your support. Thank you for, Luke and I see whenever you tweet something about the podcast. Um, we really appreciate it. I'm not really on Twitter on a posting level anymore, but I do see those. And it is always really nice um, to get positive feedback. Um, it makes us feel like we're doing something that's worthwhile. And we, we really are glad that you've been, especially those of you who, and we know there are a lot of you who've been with us for the, from the beginning. We really appreciate that. Yeah, we should. It's been a long time. We should probably say, you know, rate review, um, five star ratings preferred, and uh, and yeah, we love it. Thank you, guys.